Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. Today, we welcome Kyle Buller to the show, the co-founder of Psychedelics Today, which is an online psychedelic and breathwork education center. Psychedelics Today is also one of the most influential podcasts in the space, offering insightful interviews with some of the leading researchers in the field. Kyle and co-founder Joe Moore have pushed the psychedelic renaissance along in a huge way, helping to educate both laymen and professionals about the benefits and applications of psychedelics in both recreational and clinical settings, along with harm reduction education. Kyle Buller earned his BA in transpersonal psychology, where he studied the healing potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness by exploring shamanism, plant medicine, holotropic breathwork, and the roots and benefits of psychedelic psychotherapy. But before we get to it, if you like what we do and you want to support the show, we really appreciate a follow or a sub, as well as a five-star review and maybe even some kind words of encouragement in the form of a review. These things really help us to expand our reach and credibility, which is much appreciated. If you're feeling extra altruistic, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity, where you can donate as little as $2 a month to support what we do. We're also on Instagram at pursuit of infinity pod. So reach out to us there and give us a follow. Today also marks the day when our YouTube channel finally drops. So go check us out there, give our channel a follow, and see what we have to offer. And without further delay, please help us to welcome to the show, Kyle Buller. So as everyone will have heard in the intro, uh, we're here today with Kyle Buller, the co-founder of Psychedelics Today, along with Joe Moore, who we had on a few months back. Um, Psychedelics Today is an online psychedelic and breathwork education center. And the first thing that I wanted to bring up was that this podcast was actually birthed from the integration project of your course, Navigating Psychedelics. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, last year I took this course, Navigating Psychedelics for Clinicians and Therapists through Psychedelics Today. And at the end, there's a project where the students are required to either put together a physical piece of art or some sort of physical project or do some sort of development plan for how we're going to move forward in this world while integrating uh, the stuff that we've learned in the class. Um, so my project was the planning and the development of this podcast. So along with thanking Joe, I'd like to thank you um, for igniting the fire and for coming on the show today, Kyle. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, well, thank you for showing up, right? Because the project wouldn't have taken off if you didn't engage in it. So I think that was the, the point of the project. So yeah, it's so cool to see it manifest. I think that's like a really important lesson when it comes to, to integration. How do we really move these experiences forward in our life? And yeah, it's cool to see it manifest on, on your end finally. Yeah. And I mean, I learned a lot. I know that uh, people that I was in the class with also learned a lot. Um, and one of the most memorable things in the course for me personally was when we had like our live sessions and the one live session, uh, you had told everyone about your near death experience, which I understand was sort of like your first um, like journey into transpersonal states, big, gigantic, mystical type experiences. So uh, would you mind telling that story again in as much detail as you feel necessary? Yeah, sure. Um, 
was 15 and I came across this book called Snowboarding to Nirvana and I read it during my winter break of my freshman year of, of uh, high school and I think we had kind of had to do like a book report but it was about this guy who went over to Nepal and, and ran into uh, this Buddhist monk um, and the monk brought him in and taught him transcendental meditation um, and so in the book they had all these kind of meditation techniques and um, I started to kind of incorporate it. And the way that the uh, the person was incorporating it into their life in the book was that they were trying to really enhance the flow state of snowboarding. Um, and I was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> you know, so I remember trying to enter into flow states. I was a big swimmer back then. Um, and so, like, I would think about, like, the visualization, trance states while I'm swimming to kind of access, like, another kind of uh, state of consciousness, see if I could do a little bit better. Um, and then. I always kind of joke around about a year later, um, I say I kind of snowboarded to Nirvana. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I had, I had this pretty big near death experience. Um, so I was 16, it was a year later. Um, yeah, it was during winter break. It was new year's Eve. Um, and I didn't really want to go out and party with my friends. Um, I wanted to go snowboarding. Um, so me and my brother and his friend went out, um, to hit the mountain and my brother's friend fell. He kind of banged his head, um, a little bit. It wasn't anything serious, but it just kind of shook him up. And we went inside the lodge and I said, you know, we just got here. Let's do one more run. Um, I was like, you don't have to go out, but I want to do one more run. Um, and they both decided that they, they would go out and if you ski or snowboard, um, I, I, I guess I learned this afterwards, but you should never call your last run. Um, <laughs> so I tried to plan out the longest run on the mountain, um, taking multiple trails and just saying, okay, I would be content if, if I can do this. Um, so during the day it was really warm that day. And so it created like a kind of a slushy type of snow. And then by the time it was nighttime, I was doing some night, night snowboarding in um, the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And it was turned into like that granular type of ice. Um, and there was just mounds everywhere. So it's like the, the warm kind of slush got all kicked up. And then it starts to freeze at night. And you're just left with kind of like these like little icy granular mounds. So I was going around this turn. Um, and it was this trail called the Nile Mile. And it was kind of just like a big snake. Um, and so it had these big kind of like S turns. Um, and I was going around the, the second one and I was just, I was going pretty fast. Um, I was on my toe edge and I was coming out of this turn and I saw this mound of snow. Um, and it was kind of being shaded by the light. Um, and you, when you're going around the turn, you know, there, there's kind of a blind spot, like you're kind of turning into things that you can't always see. And so when I came out of it, I noticed this mound of snow and the immediate thought, I said, oh, shit, if I hit this, I'm going to die. <clears throat> so I tried to turn. I tried to stop. I tried to do everything I could. And everything started to slow down and, and started to go slow motion. And so I hit this mound of snow. And then time seemed to s uh, speed up. And I flew through the air, I guess, about like 30 feet or so. And I think my brother was behind me. And they said I wasn't very high in the air. It didn't, like, launch me high. But it was just... At, at, I was going so fast, it was just kind of like a long type of, uh, it shot me long and far. So the nose of my snowboard hit, my shoulder hit, and I heard a loud pop. Um, and I immediately lost like air. I was gasping for air. I just started screaming, um, kind of like these deathly grunts. And I slid down the mountain um, for a bit. 
And when I stopped, I just like, I was in so much pain. I heard this loud pop and my immediate thought was I snapped a rib. Um, so my brother and his friend came, they said, are you okay? I said, there's no way I can get up. I'm really like badly injured. So they said they would go down and, and get somebody. <clears throat> um, so I'm laying there in the snow face down, kind of having these deathly grunts like, uh, uh, and like, cause I'm, you know, tr can't really breathe. And, um, I'm just having all this pain in my chest and my stomach. And I'm watching like all these people just whiz by me. Nobody's stopping. Nobody's seeing if I'm okay. And then these two punk ass snowboarders, thank you to whoever you are. Um, <laughs> they stopped and they asked me if they had, if I had a light because they wanted to smoke a cigarette. Um, but they said, you know, are you okay? And I said, no. So they put their snowboards in front of me and hung out with me, thankfully. So, you know, they, they went up the trail a little bit, blocked it off. So people weren't coming out of that corner, kind of like what I was doing full speed and then, you know, possibly running into me. Um, I was probably there for about like 30 or 45 minutes and my brother came back with his friend and he said, they're not coming for you. And I said, what do you mean they're not coming? And he said, I don't know. We, we mentioned that you, you were hurt and the lifty just kind of like shrugged it off and, and didn't really say much. Um, and so I was just like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? Luckily, you know, it was a small resort. Ski patrol is always kind of patrolling. Um, a random ski patroller came down asked me if I was okay, told him I was pretty hurt. Um, he tried to take my vitals. Um, and, uh, I remember trying to take my pulse because he like couldn't feel my pulse. Um, and they got a, they got a, a sled, they hooked me up to the toboggan. <clears throat> and then in the background, I guess my dad told me this story. He was at the bar just, you know, um, hanging out, waiting for us kids to be done. And I guess another uh, kid came in and went to their father's. Oh, man, there's this guy like really hurt on the Nile Mile. He, he's dying. And, you know, my dad was like, oh, it sucks for that kid. Uh, and then like a couple like minutes later, my brother came in and said, Kyle is really hurt. Um, so they got the, the toboggan. They brought me down, um, got me to first aid. And they started to check my vitals. They're checking my pulse. They're you know doing everything. I told him, you know, I, I heard this pop in my, my chest and I'm in a lot of pain. And they said, uh, you know, your ribs are fine. There's no bruising. Um, nothing's cracked. Doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. But your pulse is really low. And we think you have internal injuries. You look really pale. Like, are you typically this pale? Or, you know, do you typically have a low pulse? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe. Um, and... They just said, yeah, we think you have internal injuries. And at that moment, I just remember going, oh, shit, I'm going to die tonight. And I wasn't very religious growing up, but I started to pray. I just remember going, God, if you're out there, I do not want to die. Um, it was scary. I was, I was terrified um, hearing that. And I just found out a few years ago, my dad was uh, recounting part of this story with, with some other folks. And I guess so thankfully, they, they, met, they got a helicopter and medevaced me out. Um, they put me in an ambulance to bring me to the, the helipad. But I guess as they got me to the, the ambulance and were getting me in there, one of the first responders looked at my dad and said, your son's in his golden hours and he may not make it. Um, and I think that scared the shit out of him. Um, he told me he just like did like a hunt, like just drove to the hospital so quick. Um, my uncle was actually a first responder in that county, in that township. Um, and so he met me there. And I remember when I was on that being medevaced, my phone is just like blowing up nonstop. Like all my friends are calling me. They're 
found out, yeah, they were really pissed that I was just ignoring their calls. Um, you know, I was supposed to like meet up with them for all these New Year's events. Um, so my uncle was there and, and he, he looked at me and, you know, they're, they're again, checking my vitals. They're trying to take off my clothes, take off my snowboard boots. I'm trying to help them. But I remember my uncle said, you know, you're in good hands. Um, I know these people and, and, and you're going to be okay. And at that moment, I had this weird thought where I, I was looking at him and I said, you know, this is somebody that's family, blood related. Um, but about where I'm about to go, I can't take anybody with me. Like, this is my own journey. Um, and that was like a really interesting thought to have of like this, I'm just going on this journey by myself and I can't bring this physical person with me. <clears throat> um, so yeah, they're checking my vitals. They're, they're, um, I'm, I'm hearing in the background, like we can't get a pulse on him. Um, his veins and his upper body are collapsing. You know, they're talking, they're just jabbing me with needles. Um, and cause they can't like get into my veins to, to get the IVs in. Um, I think they jabbed a huge one in my femoral artery. Um, I remember my uncle being like, that one scared me. They they pulled that one out and I just felt so bad for you. Um, so it was a pretty big needle going um, into that part of my thigh. Um, so I'm hearing all this stuff, but nothing is kind of like, you know, bothering me. I describe it as like, it was like I entered into this like oceanic, like field of empathy it was just like I tapped into something where I could feel all the emotion in the room. I felt like I was across the room with like all the doctors, the nurses. I was feeling into all this stuff. And I was also having my own experience. So then after they checked my vitals, tried to get me tapped up with IVs, um, they did a sonogram on me and they told me, this is why you feel really sick and why you have all this pain in your stomach. You have massive internal bleeding. Your abdomen is just filled with blood. Um, and we, we need to figure out where this is, where this bleeding's coming from. So they said, we need to take you to the CAT scan machine and, and try to figure out what, what's going on there. So they, 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 they brought me over there. Um, and as I was in the CAT scan machine, things really started to kind of take off. Um, I remember just laying down cold, just so cold. I, I'll never forget that feeling. Um, you know, I had like no blood circulating through me. Um, it felt like I was just submerged in a tub of ice water. And I remember just sitting there shaking um, in, in, in the CAT scan. Um, and I could hear the doctor on the other side, on the intercom. He just kept telling me, Kyle, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Be with us. Um, and in my mind, I just was kind of like going, oh, I just, I just want to go to bed. Like, I'm so tired. I'm so cold. And they're trying to instruct me, you know, take a deep breath in you know, for, for like the CAT scan instructions. And I'm just thinking... I can't do anything. I just want to drift off. And at that point, um, I kind of describe it as like this white light, golden light. There's like some sort of orb around me. Um, and there is this voice and I don't really know how to describe it. I don't really remember it being an external voice. It felt more of an internal voice um, or like a deep sense of knowing. Um, and this voice said, you're going home. You're going back to the stars where we all come from. And this physical life's going to cease to exist, but you'll continue onward. And the more that you struggle with this process, the harder it's going to be. So the more that you can ease into this experience, the easier this transition will be for you. And I just remember feeling completely blissed out and going, I, I kept thinking, I'm going home. I'm going home. Like, I'm, this is what we all wait for. Um, and in the meantime, the doctor is telling me, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Stay with us. And I'm just thinking, like, no, this is it. This is, this is what we all wait for. And I felt this just total bliss and love. Um, 
And so they wheeled me out and told me, you just ruptured your spleen. You have massive internal bleeding. We need to do surgery ASAP. Um, so they wheeled me to the OR and they're explaining what was going on. I'm completely like out of it and slipping away and, and kind of, um, yeah, fading out. And the, the last, last stuff I remember hearing was they were trying to describe um, giving me um, an analgesia, like anesthesia. And uh, they said, you know, we're going to count backwards, this and that. Um, and I just heard one of the doctors say, like, I think they were talking about trying to shave my chest. Um, but the last words I remember before blacking out was, should we use an electric razor or a straight razor? <laughs> and then, and then I, I blacked out. Um, and I, I woke back up as a, they were wheeling me to the ICU. And I remember as they were wheeling me through there, it was like my spirit like jumped back into my body and I shot up from the bed um, and just started shaking violently. And in those like split seconds, I remember hearing he's awake and he's cold. And um, and then I just like passed out and then woke up in an ICU with my family around me. Um, and I was pretty aware of time. I, I remember waking up and going, is it New Year's Eve? And they said, yes. And I said, did the ball drop? And they said, no, it's 930. I'm like, oh, wait, this all happened at like 730. Um, and then I just remember I was so parched. And I one of the first things I said, I was like, green tea. Can I get green tea? And one of the nurses was standing there. He said, you can't drink anything, Kyle. And I just remember going, uh, <laughs> and I passed out for the rest of the night. I, I couldn't, couldn't cope with not being able to drink anything. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. And uh, you said you were in the Poconos, right? Yeah. That's yeah. like 20 minutes from where I live. They may have even taken Oh, no a, way. I live right down the street from a hospital, Lehigh Valley Hospital. They, may they brought have taken me to St. Yeah, they brought me to St. Luke's. St. Luke's, yeah, right yeah. down the road. That's so and funny. So I was uh, snowboarding at Camelback. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, it's so, so crazy. Every time I hear stories of near-death experiences or I was reading this book, um, I think it was called Awake by Dr. Bruce Grayson. Mm. I think he's like the foremost leading doctor who studies near-death experiences. And every time I hear about them, it seems that psychedelic experiences and near-death experience sort of validate one another. They're mm -hmm. like within the same realm. Um, so how close was your first mystical psychedelic experience to your near-death experience? Yeah, so I was around 19, I think, um, when I had my first, one of my first psilocybin experiences. My first psilocybin experience was probably like what we would classify as like a museum dose. Um, it was pretty low and, you know, it was interesting. The The walls were a little breathing and it was fun. I remember laughing, but that experience definitely would not prepare me for what I was about to experience with this first um, really, really powerful uh, psychedelic experience. I had some, I had some experiences with cannabis beforehand and I think that was um, somewhat helpful uh, uh, to kind of prep me. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I think I was 19 and I kind of took it. So after the near death experience, I was pretty depressed. I, I rode this high for a while and, um, you know, being really thankful to be alive. And then reality started setting in. I had this like new way of thinking and being in the world that was really challenging. Um, and I didn't really have like a lot of support, people that could understand that stuff. Right. Um, and I really didn't know where to look. Like I, 
I remember my junior year, I really attached to a lot of the existential writers and philosophers because there's something there around like the meaningless of life. Um, and I think I was attaching to that because I, I came back again, like riding this high and then probably like, you know, after my sophomore year, I was just like, this is all bullshit. Like, I don't want to spend my time doing half this stuff that doesn't mean anything. Like, I'd rather be going doing other things. And so I, I think I really kind of appreciated some of those early existential writers because it helped me kind of like, I don't know, deal with some of the existential despair I was feeling. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people maybe don't always talk about like these deep valleys after transformative experiences that it got really, really dark. Um, there are a lot of times I just wanted to go back to that blissed out state. Um, and so there's kind of a lot of suicidal ideation around there of going like, I just want to return to that place that I call home. Um, and so when I came across psilocybin, um, I kind of took it, you know, we always talk about set and setting, the importance of being in a good mindset and being in a good environment. Um, I was out in the woods and I kind of took it with this uh, mentality that I kind of just wanted to escape a little bit um, just because of like all the deep, dark things that were going on in my mind at the time. Um, and so I went out into the woods with my friend. We went hiking and I think it took about two grams of Cubensis and we were walking and I watched my friend puke his up and I was like, oh man, like maybe, I don't know if this is a good sign. By this time, I felt like my body was dissolving and I was just gr trying to grasp on any little thing about reality. Um, and I remember it just kept kind of coming in waves. Like one minute I could grasp onto reality. The next minute it was just like sand falling through my hands and going like, what is going on right now? So after seeing my friend puke his, his, his up, um, we started walking a little bit more and we were on this little, little trail in the woods and I found this little rock and, and I remember pointing at it and thinking, I'm going to die on this rock right now. And so I sat on this rock and things started to get pretty dark. Um, I started to get that cold feeling. Um, I felt like there is this sense of death around me. Um, and this sense that something, this feels very familiar. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the world started to have teeth, all the plants and trees around me had all these mouths. Um, and I, I just kind of start, you know, this is considered a bad trip. If you ever heard about one. <laughs> like, this is what they portray in movies. Um, and so it was like the world kind of consumed me at this point. And I, I entered into this state of not knowing anything. I didn't know my name. I didn't know what year it was. I was trying to remember who I was. I was trying to remember what I did for work. I couldn't remember what year it was. I thought I was like doing one thing when it was a totally different year and I was doing something else. And I was really just trying to grasp on to who is Kyle and where am I in this space time continuum? Like, I have no idea what year it is, what's going on. And that was really scary. And I remember being in this like black void of nothingness going like, who am I? What is going on right now? Um, and then I started to have this, uh, I guess, like spiritual experience where I started to leave my body more. And I describe it as like I was traveling through like space in these star systems. And I came to the edge of the universe and started peering back um, into my own mind and, and there are these little entities in there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that image is burned in, in my head and, uh, you know, I know what they look like. And 
it was terrifying. I go, I don't want to know that these things exist. Like how the hell do I go back to normal reality knowing that these things are real? But when I got there, there was a part of me, I said, wait a minute, I feel like I've been here before. And these things said thousands of times. And I said, okay, this is weird. I feel like I've been here thousands of times. This feels like I'm dead. Maybe I'm in some sort of death bardo. And so I said, you know, is this what this is? And they said, more or less so. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm, I'm just confronting this trickster archetype. Like they're not giving me a yes or no. They're just keep telling me more or less so. Um, and I think, you know, so I started kind of doing this like analytical thinking in this going, okay, if X, you know, this equals this, I'm like, okay, if I've been here thousands of times, this could be a place where I went when I died. Maybe this is like the place where I went when I, when I was kind of drifting off Then Maybe this is the, maybe this is what God is. Maybe this is these entities, whatever I talked to. And, and this is what gave me this new way of knowing and seeing the world. So I, I asked that question. And of course I was confronted with more or less so. Um, and at that point, I think my friend snapped me out of it. And I remember, I remember hearing, just breathe, man, just breathe. And I remember taking this huge breath of air and I found myself back on the trail and back in my body. And, um, but I remember coming out of that and going, that was so familiar of death. Um, and you know, the, the whole trip made a turn. Everything was like just beautiful. It felt like I was reborn to some degree and it, it was really, really, really profound. But so after that whole trip ended, I came away thinking, how could I ingest this substance that could, that reminded me and could reproduce this near death like experience? Um, and that became just a fascinating question. I didn't know anything really about the science of psychedelics. I didn't really have any context besides my friends making jokes in high school, like, you know, you, you may eat these and see ele pink elephants or something like that. Like, I didn't really have a lot of context for what that experience was. And so that really kind of got me on this path to, to wanting to explore a little bit more intellectually. So, you know, people always ask, like, you know, what did you think about that experience? Was that real? I don't really know. Um, you know, I could, I could uh, tear it apart in a lot of different ways. The whole teeth and mouth thing is really interesting because if you look at, um, say, a lot of anthropological reports around what's called like the shamanic illness or crisis or kind of any sort of initiation, um, sometimes they talk about you leaving this world or the world consuming you and these spirits like, you know, just dissecting you and tearing you into like a million pieces and putting you back together again. And, and that's really interesting. I didn't know anything about that until I started kind of studying shamanism a little bit more and reading about some of these anthropological um, points of view and these stories. From the entity stuff, you know, we could look at it as uh, could this be tapping into something in the collective con unconscious? Could I have just like had contact with these archetypal beings, which I would say that was a trickster. Um, this was a total trickster energy and archetype. Um, on the other hand, did I actually did my did my psyche need to reproduce something to give me some sort of answer around my near death experience? Because I didn't have, say, the traditional near death experience where I was going down a tunnel of light. I made this decision to come back. I was meeting, like I was meeting these angels or, you know, sometimes people say they're ancestors or some sort of light being. I didn't have that. After I woke up from my accident, 
I felt like I went somewhere. I felt like um, I talked to something and I didn't have any sort of visual context for it. I just had this deep, deep, deep sense of knowing my bones that something really profound happened and I couldn't couldn't do it. And so when I think about psychedelics, we talk about psychedelics from how Dr. Stanislav Grof defines them as nonspecific amplifiers of mental or psychic processes. And so when I think about that, I go, okay, I had this process unfolding. I'm trying to figure out a bunch of these, these, uh, and like, yeah, trying to explore these questions and find some answers. And so is that what my psyche needed to just relive? It needed to reproduce an experience that reminded me of dying and death and provided kind of like this entity type of contact to give me some sort of context of like, what the hell happened when I, when I went through that near death experience? Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of ways to view it. I don't have a solid answer um, on it. I'm, 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 I try to remain open and curious around what that experience was, but it did change my life. Um, and, and it was really profound. Yeah, it's hard to say whether or not these experiences are quote-unquote real, but it also doesn't really matter in most contexts, especially within like the therapeutic context. Um, so it seems to me like obviously there are very many benefits that a person could have from taking a psychedelic and being able to address you know, some inner issues, maybe some past stuff, some things that they have to get over within themselves and maybe their life, their emotional content and things of that nature. But it seems to me that the real, when the rubber meets the road is that mystical experience, that experience of, of something that, like you said, sort of feels like God, but you can't put a finger on it. You really don't know what it is because words can't describe it. Um, do you feel like the, the biggest therapeutic breakthroughs take place within those types of experiences? It's interesting. This is like um, a question that I think researchers are starting to explore. And so I was just at a conference up here in Vermont at Stowe. Um, and I think it was uh, Dr. Matt Johnson and Dr. Chuck Rezan. His last name is how to pronounce it. Um, there was a few people talking about the mystical quality of psychedelic experiences. And do you need that for a therapeutic outcome? And so I think this is still left up to debate. And we just, I just did a webinar today um, with uh, Dr. Bruno Gomez, um, who has been working with uh, uh, Ibogaine um, down in Brazil. <clears throat> and something that he mentioned today that like I, I haven't really heard about was that uh, typically in some of the clients that he sees, people don't always have these profound visionary experiences. So sometimes people feel really dizzy or they have like a little bit of insight, but they don't have that like mystical experience, but people are still getting better. Um, and so if you asked me this a few years ago, I probably would have been pretty biased and said, yes, you need to have like this spiritual mystical type experience. But I'm also trying to be a little bit more open-minded and hear around some of the research and how other people are kind of explaining um, these experiences. And, you know, are people having similar kind of therapeutic outcome? Um, and it sounds like from what uh, Dr. Gomez was saying today that in the case of Ibogaine, that seems to be the case with some people. Um, this one research study that's, that's I guess, it, it's taking place or about to take place is that they're going to start um, administering psilocybin to those who are asleep. And I forget how they're going to um, induce sleep, whether that's through like a, a anesthesia uh, uh, to kind of shut off the brain. And 
and then administer psychedelics to see if there's actual benefit. And so would we see that if somebody is quote unquote unconscious? Um, and then, so does that lend more to the theory of like brain chemistry? Um, I don't know, but to some degree being trained in transpersonal psychology, having lots of transpersonal experiences, um, I would say that from my biased approach that does sense, does seem pretty, pretty important. Um, because those those experiences, I think, help provide a little bit of context um, with uh, what's going on, right? And so just thinking about, I had this trauma from this, this near-death experience, a lot of kind of psycho-spiritual trauma to work through. And I had a lot of questions. And with this, this experience, it provided some sort of visual context to make sense of my near-death experience. And could I have gotten better to some degree without that? Maybe, like maybe I could have had a different type of experience and would have felt better. Um, but I'm just thinking about that one experience that was very profound and it helped to actually create a, a new type of narrative in my mind where I felt at ease and I didn't have to ask so many questions. It was like this just, oh, I get it now. It's okay. Maybe I don't need to know everything. I don't need to spend time just trying to, to figure it out. It, so it did provide a little, little bit of like substance there. To, um, but I don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to ask others too, um, where they've gotten the most benefit from with psychedelics. Was it just like deep psychological insight? Um, because yeah, the, that amplification process, people can have clear thoughts. Sometimes old memories emerge and is that always a mystical experience? And so that's an interesting question. How does one define a mystical experience? You could look at like the MEQ, um, what they use to uh, study and, and rate mystical experiences. But like, you know, that, that comes from this research world. But how do you define a mystical experience? Could I define a mystical experience of reliving my birth trauma? That's more kind of I don't know, biological to some degree, and it has nothing to do with maybe merging with the oneness of the universe, where you might kind of say that was a mystical experience. And so, um, yeah, what creates the change? I think there's a lot of debate there in, in the psychedelic world, and it's, it's interesting. And I'm sure it depends on, you know, what modality you choose, whether that's, you know, psilocybin, whether you're trying to uh, participate in an ayahuasca retreat. And then there's always breath work, which mm -hmm. it's something that I still haven't tried yet. And I'm, I don't know. I'm we'll sort get of you to a workshop. Someday. Yes. Yes. I want to do one of the dream shadow, uh, workshops. Uh, I think there was one that was in Pennsylvania that I missed. We um, have one coming up. I don't think you missed it. Um, oh, coming we up. Had, we had to cancel it. Yeah. But we do have one in Philly coming up in September. Oh, that's perfect. I'm like very close to Philly. All right. Sweet. Yeah, send me that link then when uh, when we get off recording so yeah. I can uh, sign up for that for sure. Yeah. But uh, speaking of breath work, um, so I understand that you, you've had breath work experiences that are on par with psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca type experiences. And for someone who hasn't tried breath work, it seems almost unbelievable. So is that really dependent on like the particular technique you do? Because there's always like the Wim Hof methods which are uh, methods that seem to be like uh, a practice that's done daily or even multiple times a day. But you wouldn't want to necessarily get yourself into a psychedelic state multiple times a day. So what's kind of the method of getting yourself to those places? 
Yeah, so like the Dream Shadow transpersonal breathwork comes out of the lineage. Um, they, my teachers were trained by uh, Stan and Christina Groff, so they were the ones that developed holotropic breathwork. Um, and Dr. Stan Groff um, is a pioneer in LSD and psychedelic research, for those that, that don't know his name. Um, and so when the research became illegal, um, he, he found himself over in Esalen, and he was a scholar in residence, kind of going through all of his notes and, and writing. Um, and him and his wife at the time created this breathing technique um, that seemed to foster these holotropic states of consciousness. And so, yeah, I think when people think of breath work, they think of Wim Hof, um, maybe yogic or meditation styles of breath work. Um, this form of breath work, there's five components. There's intensified breathing, evocative music, um, group process, focused body work, and expressive art. Um, and so what we do is really kind of set the container up for deep inner exploration. So people will usually pair up with somebody and we talk about it as a breather sitter pair. So somebody is breathing, another person's sitting with you. You have the facilitators all around. We're in a big room, um, very low light to almost dark to kind of create that, that more internal ambiance. Um, people wear eye shades and then we play loud music and then we, uh, encourage people to intensify their breathing and the breath is just a vehicle right psychedelics are a vehicle and a tool breath is a vehicle and a tool um and coming from i guess with with dream shadow and, and what lenny has kind of passed on is that there's this amplification process with psychedelics and, and with breath work um and again if we think of it as a, a tool or a vehicle how do we set that container up to really go deep um and so I think the combination of, of all those, uh, you know, the intensified breathing, the, the evocative music, the body work, the group process, et cetera, um, helps to create that setting to go inside. Um, and what happens when the psyche gets amplified? A lot of stuff can, can show up. So, you know, I think some people, I was very skeptical when I heard this. Um, I, I, I stumbled across breath work when I was doing my undergrad in transpersonal psychology that they had a one credit weekend workshop and everybody was telling me how psychedelic it was. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, and I went down and had a really, really, really profound experience. Um, you don't always see that right off the bat with people. I think if you're a, like attuned and your, your psyche is ready to process that stuff, you'll go deep. Right. And so I'm somebody that had a near death experience. I've had a lot of these psychedelic experiences early on. I felt primed for that, right? I think if somebody maybe doesn't have those experiences and they don't have that context, they may not classify it as like, that was a psychedelic trip, right? Because you don't maybe have that experience to, to riff off of and go, yeah, that was, that was really similar to, to my psilocybin experience. Um, so again, I always come back to a lot of this is inside of us. And we just have these different tools to amplify that process and go inside. So whether it is psychedelics, whether that's breath work, there's something core there. And I don't really know how to define that core experience. The flavors are different, but it's almost like a similar core, right? It's like, um, you know, psychedelics, they get you to this spot where it's like, I don't know, we'll call it like your higher self or like, you know, getting in touch with the universe in, in a way. It's like, oh, I can feel that I have this higher self. I feel this authentic part of myself I can connect with that has this relationship with the universe. That makes sense. You can get there in breathwork and psychedelics, 
But yeah, maybe the psychedelics, they give you a little bit of the, the, the glimmer and thing other things are happening. But to me, there's like this core experience um, that feels very similar across modalities. I mean, if you look at rites of passages, right? I mean, there's so many different ways that um, humans have altered their consciousness and talked about very similar experiences. Um, again, the flavor might be a little different, but I think there is something central to to these experiences that that humans can 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 induce. Yeah, it seems that our culture is not primed for these experiences, and we don't have the correct context in which to understand them. But it does seem that shamanic cultures do, or they seem to have at least some sort of a framework where they've been working on on a map and. Um, I think it was Terrence McKenna who would say that while we were over here working with like atom smashers and metal equipment, uh, the shamanic cultures for thousands of years were trying to map the psyche and, and map yeah. you know the otherworldly realms. Um, how do we merge or accept or sort of integrate, to use that word again, the indigenous models into our own culture? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> And I know it's a question people ask pretty often, especially within like, how do you incorporate the indigenous use within even like the clinical setting? Um, this is a tricky question too, because when we ask this question, it can sometimes lead to cultural appropriation, right? So just taking from other one's culture and appropriating it. And so when I think about this question, I think, how do we understand and listen to these various cosmologies and belief systems um, and kind of understand the map and the territory, but also think about the culture that we live in as well. Um, I kind of sometimes will use, use this analogy when we talk about ayahuasca shamanism. Um, and that's, you know, the, the cosmic serpent or the jaguar is not in the concrete jungle right? Like we're dealing with way different like kind of cultures and, and lifestyles. Um, and so when we think about that, um, when you have an experience, think about what is it that makes that unique to you? Um, and how do we also really respect and honor where these medicines come from? Listen to the people that have had plenty of experience and have built cosmologies around these experiences um, and try to understand it. But you, do we always need to sit there and pull from it and say, this is exactly what it is all the time, right? Because I feel like our culture, we're, we, we live in a totally different world. Um, and so this is a very, very delicate balance at times. And so I think another example that I think about is like, so I, during my transpersonal psychology degree, I studied a little bit of like shamanic practices with a teacher. Um, he, his name's Michael and uh, he's part Cherokee Lakota and European ancestry. And, you know, I think he, he found out about some of his uh, Native American ancestry later on in life. He wasn't always connected with it. And so I think he had a little bit of a, a later go at doing these practices um, and I think, you know, he taught me a lot of stuff and I've spent some time with, with other uh, elders and what do I, like, how have I been incorporating that? And so, you know, I'm trained in like mostly Western thought, right? That, that's, that's where I live. And so I think like, 
you know, where's the shared commonality? Where's like the shared narrative there? Um, and thinking about like, what's the difference between like shamanism and counseling at times? Um, you know, so obviously there's a difference, um, but there's sometimes some crossover there. And how do I, I guess, also understand my cultural narrative and think about how it could also, some of those maybe shamanic qualities weave into that. Um, you know, I'm not going to dress up as somebody that, that's Native American. That stuff doesn't really like, that's not my culture, right? Um, so how do you respect other people's cultures? Learn from them, get permission um, to maybe understand how to integrate that in, but not just taking from it, exploiting it, and trying to then um, make it your own at, at times, if that makes sense, right? Like, I mean, you do see a lot of people with like, uh, you know, headdresses and stuff like that. And they, they just want to embody that, that worldview. And that could be really offensive um, for people that, that are um, from indigenous lineages, where it's like, you know, you didn't spend much time with these people. You don't understand their culture. I remember the first time I, I did ayahuasca, like, you know, I can understand it, reading about it so much. Um, the experience itself actually felt very familiar. Um, and there's something like, oh, yeah, I, I know this. But I remember having this thought of like, I know nothing about this plant. Like, I don't live in the jungle. I haven't had a deep relationship with it. Like some, like the like these folks, I mean, the shaman started drinking ayahuasca when he was 12, right? And he's growing up around the plant. They're living in a totally different world than I am. Um, and so I think we just have to like really think about that and, and be honest, be respectful, honor where it comes from, but also know our own limitations. Like I would probably die in the jungle. So I'm not going to pretend I need to, you know, be living in the jungle doing this stuff all the time. Um, you know, I thought when I was younger, I would wanted to do that. I'm like, Oh, that, that'd be awesome. Um, I don't know, maybe life will take me there and, and I'll learn, but, um, you know, that's not my reality. Um, and I think we just have to be honest about that. But I don't know. I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts about that as well. To me, it, it seems that like you were saying the crossover, I think one of the most basic crossover points that we can get across would just be nature and our relationship yeah. with nature. You know, if we could just learn something from them. Um, about how they interact with nature, not bastardizing and, and um, approaching it in a way where it's like us against nature. You know, we are animals and we are the earth, we are the universe. And I think that that number one lesson right there would be something that could really uh, transform the way that we think about all transpersonal experiences as well. But I think another really big part of this is, like you said, respecting the culture and respecting where these things come from. And nowadays, like I just saw a news article not long ago, um, and it was like on Apple News. It just came up, popped up on my phone, and it said, why billionaires are smoking toad venom. And, mm, yeah. you know, that along with, uh, like, the abuse of peyote, it seems that we have an issue with the conservation of nature. So, yeah. I mean, where do you see that going? I think it's like, it's really interesting. I know uh, Joe has talked about this on the podcast and stuff. Um, you know, he lives in Colorado and I think he's closer connected to the Southwest. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a question to ask oneself of, do I engage in a practice where some of these plants are at risk, right? And peyote being one of them. Um, and those conservation efforts are, are needed, right? Like, 
And it's not just say like over harvesting and this and that, that's, that's probably an issue. People poaching lands and, and stealing uh, peyote uh, buttons and it takes a long time for that to, to produce. But, you know, we also have to think about like the ecosystems and how delicate ecosystems are. And, um, you know, if, if we do believe and can come to terms that climate change is happening, right? How is that going to change uh, the landscape over time, right? And I think it, it brings up an interesting thing of like who who gets to like um, have these these medicines. Um, and I remember there was somebody that was that was part of um, a culture that uses peyote, and there seems to also be a difference within you know generational differences where the the elder in the community said it should only be reserved for 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 their culture and their people and then the the younger person in the, the same community was saying well this is medicine for everybody right um i think we do really need to be honest about these conservation efforts and sustainability because what happens if yeah i mean some of these plants do go extinct and that was very embedded in somebody's uh, religious and cultural beliefs and, and cosmology and they don't have access to that um and I, so i don't know i'm always kind of conscious about that um and and think about like yeah should i be participating um you know i think if you are invited um to a ceremony um by somebody that is authentic and, and from that culture like is that always a bad thing i don't think so um you know there, there probably is that time and place for that but you know, think about like what, what you could be doing. So like, you know, for example, with the toad, um, we, we had, um, some colleagues and, and five MEO, uh, researchers create this little, uh, sticker and, and art thing. And I think they slapped it on a t-shirt and we had it up on our, our shop, but it says, um, save a toad, exploit a chemist. Um, and so, you know, if you are wanting to maybe, um, try five MEO DMT, could you find somebody that's using synthetic DMT? 5-MEO? Does it always need to come from the toad? Um, you know, if you are interested in peyote, could you also try San Pedro or maybe synthetic mescaline? Um, and, you know, obviously you'll get into some of these like more nuanced things around like, well, the spirit of peyote is different than the spirit of San Pedro or like synthetic 5-MEO isn't the same as, you know, smoking toad. Um, but I think again, like thinking about like conservation, um, it is important and, you know, um, it's just something to be aware of that we do live on a finite planet. Uh, yeah. Spaceship earth as Bucky Fuller liked to say. Right. And, um, you know, this probably wasn't a problem when a lot of these medicines were just used in small, small populations. Right. Um, wasn't being over harvested, wasn't, you know, the demand wasn't there. And so we have to think about consumer demand now, especially as psychedelics start to become more mainstream. I mean, just in a few weeks of this recording, we're recording on uh, June 27th here, I think it's July 12th, um, a new Netflix documentary is coming out, How to Change Your Mind, about Michael Pollan's book. And what type of impact is that going to have on culture at large? I mean, his book was a very, had much impact but a Netflix series, I think it's a four part series, that's gonna reach a lot more people. And like, are people gonna be interested in seeking out these medicines? Um, and so, you know, if you are, just also think about maybe the conservation efforts. Again, today on um, this webinar we were hosting about iboga, 
Um, you know, the, the presenter was also bringing up the conservation efforts for Iboga. Um, you know, uh, Iboga can't be exported um, from Gabon. Um, it's, I think they said it's like a national treasury. And so, you know, they're also thinking about like, what are other plants that they could uh, create extractions of Ibogaine out of? Um, are there any other substitutes there? And so, yeah, it's, it's an important conversation and also very nuanced. And I know people um, have different opinions. And so I think it's like, how dogmatic do we get around, say, you know, um, I need to take this plant because of the spirit in there, right? Um, I think when Albert Hoffman synthesized psilocybin or psilocin, and brought it to Maria Sabina. Maria Sabina said, oh, these, this, is, this is great. Um, I can use this when the mushrooms are in season. She did make a comment around it not having its spirit. But again, you know, like, what are you using these substances for? What are you looking for? It really kind of comes back to intention. Can you do some similar deep work with another compound that, like, isn't, you know, having a, a big impact on the environment and just be as beneficial? Um, so I don't know, just some things to think about and just to be more aware of. I'm not giving any hard, I don't want to give any hard answers of what somebody should or shouldn't do. Yes, yeah, definitely important things to, uh, to think about as we move forward. Um, and, uh, well, as we move toward, uh, the end of this conversation here, I understand you have a call you have to get to pretty shortly. Um, is there anything else you'd like to cover or any events or anything like that you'd like to plug? Um, Events. I mean, just yeah, if anybody wants to check out what we're doing here at Psychedelics today, um, you can check that out at psychedelicsa.com. Um, we just launched a new program called Vital, which is a 12-month program. Um, and you can check out more at vitalpsychedelictraining.com. Um, that new cohort isn't launching until next April, so April of 2023, but um, you can get on the wait list there and stay up to date around um applications. Um, and I mean I think the other thing that maybe we didn't touch on is just around integration, right? And that's always a fun topic. And I think, again, like highlighting the fact that this podcast came from an integration project, um, which is, you know, so cool to, you know, now come back and, and be part of it. So, um, you know, I just want to congratulate you on, you know, your success there of actually manifesting it. And, and it's so cool to to watch that and, and be part of it. Um, but the importance of really sitting with your experience. And uh, I always think like, you know, how many times do we need to be in, going into that realm? Um, there was this really, I was having this conversation with um, an anthropologist. I think she was an anthropologist. I forget her, her training and background, but um she was saying that in some tribes that she studied with, they would only drink ayahuasca when they really needed it. And I said, well, why was that? And she said, you know, because it opened up their community to different things, right? Um, it was like that energy could come into the community. Um, and so really thinking about, like, what are we getting out of these experiences? Um, do we always need to keep going back in there? And I think it was um, Jeremy Narby when we had him on our podcast. He said, ayahuasca can give you like 10 years worth of content. Um, and do you always need to be stirring the pot all the time? Um, or can you really um, sit there and cultivate something from, from all that content? And uh, I think that, that that's important to think about as, again, like psychedelics be start become more mainstream. and I think this really comes from my own experiences of chasing and seeking those answers. Um, 
really kind of getting caught up in, if I just do it one more time, I'm going to know the secrets of the universe, right? Um, and it's like, what are we getting from these experiences and how do we bring them down into our bodies, into this 3D reality and, um, you know, really kind of plant some seeds um, and, and start to do the work. I think, you know, I got caught up in that really early on and I kept bumping up against the same, same answers. And I finally got to this point of going, well, if I'm not making any changes in my real life, then what's actually changing? Why am I constantly chasing these experiences um, if I'm not actually doing the work here? Um, and so, you know, just something to, to consider and think about um, as people start to move into this work, like, you know, how can you really um, not solely focus on the, on, on the medicine experience or drug experience? It's just one part, right? Um, there's so much more that goes into it. And just to, to think about that as well. Yeah, there's a reason that we come back to this default everyday waking mode of consciousness. And I think that any experience outside of that should inform the way that we act here and now. So, and uh, Kyle, I really appreciate you coming on today, man. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been really fun and I appreciate it. Thank you everybody for sticking around and listening. 